0: Come back, come back, come back, come back my second
1: time. Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the Analysis.news. In a few seconds, I'll be back with Rob Johnson to talk about a ticking time bomb in the global financial system. I hate to be the bearer of more bad news, but there's a story that appeared in the business press but received almost no attention in mass media. I think capitalism is in chaos and is out of solutions if the climate crisis wasn't enough to convince you here's another example bloomberg reports there's a hidden risk deep inside the global financial system embedded within 65 trillion of dollar debt held by non-U.S. institutions via currency derivatives, according to the Bank of International Settlements. Okay, if you don't know what all that means, we're going we're to get into that soon. Just know all this could affect our lives in dire ways. Back to Bloomberg. Banks headquartered outside the U.S. carry $39 trillion of this debt, more than double their on-balance sheet obligations, and 10 times their capital. Shadow banks, otherwise known as non-bank financial intermediaries, have increased their dollar swap and forward liabilities to $26 trillion, which is twice the size of their on-balance sheet debts. Okay, I'm going to take a crack at interpreting this. Dollar swaps are when Say non-U.S. pension fund or corporation or bank needs to do a transe- transaction in U.S. dollars but holds euros. They agree to do a currency swap with a partner who holds U.S. dollars and wants euros. These can be of enormous size, hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes swapping overnight or in just a matter of a few days, but it can also be longer. Sounds reasonable, but wait a minute. Okay, now we're going back to Bloomberg again. Non-US banks have almost 40 trillion of hidden dollar liabilities from FX, that's foreign foreign exchange, and forwards, nearly three times their recorded dollar debt. Okay, now accounting conventions only require derivatives to be booked on a net basis, so the full extent of the cash involved isn't recorded on a balance sheet. This is what's keeping the Bank for International Settlements up at night. Reuters reports the $80 trillion plus hidden debt that's even more than than Bloomberg said, $80 trillion of debt estimate exceeds the stocks of dollar treasury bills, repo, and commercial paper combined, the BIS said. Okay, again, so what does all this financial gobbledygook mean? Well, in short, there could be a ticking time bomb in the global financial system that could trigger a crash, something similar, 2007 and 2008. That means millions of people around the world falling further into despair, losing homes, losing jobs, a devastating effect for all of us ordinary folk who have little to no knowledge of what's going on in the financial sector. Now joining us to make sense of all this is Rob Johnson. Rob is the president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, INET, and in his multifaceted life and career, he was at one point chief economist of the Senate Banking Committee at the time of the 87 stock market crash and savings and loan crisis. He also is known as the man who helped George Soros and Stanley Druckenmiller break the Bank of England. That's a whole other story. You can look it up. He now fights for regulation of the financial system, as Rob says, in ways to have the financial sector generate economic growth and balance and limit predatory value extraction, which ain't happening much now. All right, thanks for joining me, Rob.
0: It's my pleasure. This is, how would I say, an important and treacherous uh, domain that you want to explore.
1: So, Rob, all this stuff is so complex that people not involved, and I'd suspect a lot of this complexity is deliberate, so people not involved don't understand it. Uh, If it wasn't for a few articles in the financial press, nobody would even know of this BIS report. Uh, How dangerous is this warning?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, a number of things come to mind. First of all, I want to encourage people to get better acquainted with the Bank for International Settlements. The various people there, Bob McCauley, Hyun Shin, and others, are at a multilateral institution in a time of globalization. And they are studying which you might call the fault lines and flaws in the system. Whether it be in the old days, how the Asian companies all borrowed dollars and then brought the money into renminbi so they could have a US-China crisis like they had in 2015 or like the kind of, uh, we might call swaps and forwards mismatch they're talking about now. They look for the vulnerable, kind of the weak links or the fault lines in the system.
1: How dangerous is this warning?
0: Well, I think the scale that we're talking about, the 39 trillion so much, et cetera, tells you that if something slips, like if you step on the banana peel, then And what they talk about in their report is the central banks will then all have to come in and open the spigots. In other words, if there's a dollar shortage and it creates a frenzy, they're going to have to supply the dollars to put out the fire. And what that comes down to is what I have referred to in work I've done on finance is the mother of all moral hazards. If you know the central bank, can see the big institutions, creating something that's dangerous for the whole world, the central bank has no choice, as an we might call an organ of public policy, but to try to put out the fire. But if you know they'll put out the fire, you may take more risk knowing you're going to get underpinned. And what we need is a system where they're there to rescue, but they also have the capacity to evaluate these institutions, have proper reporting of their positions, and which you might call impose prior restraint.
1: Okay, just for a second before we get further into this, just so people under- understand the dynamic here: if a Japanese company wants, I don't know, Canadian dollars, say, and some other company or a bank or financial institution, pension fund has Canadian dollars but wants yen, uh, they can do a swap, and eventually they will resolve this swap and this money doesn't stay go on the balance sheet until the whole transaction is completed at any rate it all sounds relatively benign why is it dangerous uh, like well
0: if you're saying all of these institutions are fine in terms of their balance sheet integrity and so forth and they've made a deal to go from dollars into yen in 30 days from now come back out and the, you know, the the price, the difference between the price today and the price 30 days from now depends upon the interest you'd earn, what they call interest rate arbitrage. If let's say US has a 3% interest rate and another country, say Italy has a 6% interest rate, so if you borrow dollars and then invest in Italian lira, you're going to borrow at three percent and earn at six percent and then when you close that out you go back you know you, you you close it out but there is an anticipation in what's called covered interest parity these are technical terms that if the italian lira is going to pay you three dollars three percent let's just call it a year over a year if they're going to pay you 3% over a year more than what you borrow for dollars, the exchange rate's going to depreciate by 3%, meaning the dollar-lira currency rate. And so that the, the net net, it's an even deal. You can either be in dollars and earn 3%, or you can be in lira, earn 6% with a 3% depreciation. And If that's all a closed system and there's no solvency risk on either side and everybody honors the contract, then it's fine. Now we move to some of the peculiarities. For instance, not every country and not every country's borrowers are as high integrity as others. So a country like Germany or a country like the United States may, or Switzerland might have a more solid financial system than some of emerging Asia. And so, or Latin America or other places. So when you engage in these contracts, if the borrowers who are borrowing dollars and are supposed to repay, start to have fear of default risk over that one year horizon that I used hypothetically, it could be three months or one month, then they may not come back and repay and retire the debt. In other words, the hole that's created by the fear of bankruptcy or insolvency of institutions is, which I might call a void that must be filled to protect the quality of credit. If these are small numbers and short term things, they don't tend to be as dangerous. Or if everybody is considered properly monitored and regulated, so all of the financial institutions who are engaged have enough capital set aside, which you might call a safety buffer, then everything can balance out. And if it's all done on a small scale, It doesn't have systemic effects, but when you have tens of trillions of dollars spread across a world system that has very, very different qualities of regulation and integrity of financial institutions, the BIS is warning us that if something collapses in one place or another, the ability to honor the round trip contract Will be not only it will be suspect, which will lead to speculation on it blowing up, which will exacerbate the blow up. In other words, some smart people will see, say, on a Ukraine crisis where a country that's very dependent upon oil, their balance of payments will deteriorate, and then can they finance things, etc. And people, in other words, financial speculators are smart and when there's a fault line if it's getting bigger they put more pressure on it
1: so it can become like in the midst of a moment of crisis that might even be triggered by something else like what happened to 0708 subprime or something like the fall of lehman brothers one crisis can trigger the other and so this gets triggered and because it's on such an enormous scale uh, there's no way to evaluate just how risky it is because we actually don't have a handle on how much off-the-books there is. I think one document, maybe it was the BIS report, said the amount of outstanding off-the-book debt and the debt on the books, if you combine it all, it's like equal to the whole global GDP. The numbers are
0: staggering. Yeah, Let me take you back into history a little bit. Enron, appeared to be a very successful corporation and they created things off balance sheet called special purpose vehicles and they did a lot of their transactions there and which you might call hid their losses there so their holding company looked like it was very profitable and their stock looked like a good investment but when those off balance sheet special purpose vehicles were revealed, then the whole picture changed suddenly. In the 19, uh, or excuse me, in the 2008-9-10 crisis, is what they call the Great Financial Crisis, many of the big bank holding companies had lots of special purpose vehicles which had big holdings of derivatives in other countries and other places that were not disclosed to the regulators. So let's let's talk about, you allow structures where people can hide their position, you're creating the potential for danger. If you don't allow regulators to impose what I'll call capital requirements on each position you take, then the system is more fragile and more risky. And so the first thing you need is proper disclosure of what positions you have. And the second thing is you need an understanding that the regulatory authorities can put that safety cushion requirement on you while you go out and play in the private markets. What the BIS is alluding to here is we've got undisclosed and hidden positions, potentially a very high scale, We have not got uniform global regulation. So what I will call the examination, the scrutiny, the enforcement and the requirements of capital are not uniform. And then obviously the world can have unfolding events, which economists refer to as shocking the system, which suddenly changes the perspective, but then People go into a bit of a frightened frenzy because if they don't know what positions their counterparties really have, they get scared, become more cautious. Everybody runs to safety, and it widens these fault lines and leads to what you might call the propagation of fear and the propagation of damage. And that's what draws the central banks and finance ministries in to bail out these guys. And like the 2008 crisis in the United States. As Joe Stiglitz once famously said, the polluters got paid. And then you go through a crisis where the people who were reckless are the people we're using our public funds to support. And we're not building healthcare systems. We're not building education systems. We're using our fiscal capacity to subsidize gamblers. And the demoralization is fierce. Steve Bannon once said, if it hadn't been for those bailouts in the great financial crisis, and his father was hurt by that, Uh, he was a linesman for, I believe, AT&T. And Bannon said, when his father lost his pension, all kinds of people became so despondent about the governance of America that it's what led to the Tea Party, Occupy Wall Street, a Republican House, a Republican Senate, and his guy Donald Trump becoming the President of the United States. A repeat performance like that right now would be even more dangerous, given the skepticism about expertise and elites that we all face. This is a very, very dangerous environment in the, which you might call, Environment of skepticism about whether governance is working for the people or not. And the authoritarian alternative is not an attractive one.
1: So, if I understand this whole process correctly, if a Canadian bank is, say, trading dollars for yen with a Japanese bank, they actually have to go through the US dollar before they complete the trade because of the US dollar's dominating role and it's the reserve currency. So in the, in the final analysis, all of this architecture, uh, all roads lead through the US financial system. So is, it's really up to the US regulatory authorities to deal with this, and it seems like they're not. Well, that's the hub for all this, and, and I assume Congress is really the ones that are supposed to supposedly passing regulatory legislation but they haven't even taken on their own banks, never mind all this global financial activity in any serious regulatory way.
0: Well, I, I, I want to qualify it just a little bit. We have a parable that was once called the Treaty of Westphalia, which is about how a nation state is structured and who's responsible. We now have what we call globalization, where which you might call the domain of the sovereign is much smaller than the scope of the marketplace in which people act. And the dollar is used not just for the American economy. It's used in transactions between say Korea and China or between Canada and Europe, but there's like you referred to an intermediate step because everybody goes, into dollars and then out to the next thing, because if they get through some surprise or shock called, the place they can retire their exposure is back into dollars. There's not a big, what I'll call cross-currency market between the Canadian dollar and the Spanish peseta. But what are you going to do? You're going to go basically, maybe Peseta into Euro, Euro into dollars, dollars into Canadian dollars, because every one of those pairs has more liquidity and breadth of market depth than the straight across from the from the Spanish currency, which is largely, I mean, they largely use the Euro now. I, I probably would have made a better example if I said something like uh, the Brazilian currency would come through dollars, or an Asian currency would come through. They don't really, how would I say, there, there's been some initiatives. There's a famous initiative called the Chiang Mai Initiative, where the Chinese were reflecting a desire not to have everything triangle through the dollar. They could do things between the renminbi and the say, a Malaysian Ringgit or Thai Baht, and they would have an Asian system, like there was an entry European system before the Euro, where the Deutsche Mark and French Francs and so, all things worked in a coherent system. But we're, we're in a place right now where, in addition to it not just being America and America's responsibility, there's dollar things going on between governments over which the American people and American government has no authority. And what we've tried to create in Bretton Woods, World Bank, IMF, and other things are what you might call multilateral institutions, which at least create cooperation and collaboration and minimize these dangers from what you might call reckless things that use the currency from a country that's not really involved in the transaction. But the scale of what you're seeing is now huge. So what what should the regulations be and, and who
1: should be regulating this? Is it the Fed? Is it Congress? And if it's Congress, well like forget about it, because Congress, especially this Congress coming, isn't going to do much banking regulation.
0: I what I would what I would say is that leadership in the world financial system should probably be which I might call taken to the table of, of the G20. When these fault lines, these potential dangerous, uh, I'm not saying existing positions are dangerous. I'm saying when you have a systemic recognition like the Bank for International Settlements, the BIS report, they should take that to the head table of the G20 and say, how are we going to work this out? This doesn't look healthy. It looks like the remnants of playing nation state games with all kinds of wild and woolly offshore games from globalization, and we don't have a coherent monetary system. And if it does break down, the consequences will flow back into all these nations. There, there's a, how do you say, a collective danger from playing in all these little pockets that have side effects. That are not being, which you might call, put on the head table. And that's why I think the BIS warning is an excellent one. It's saying this isn't some little funny thing going on at a Las Vegas hotel. This is trillions of dollars in a world system with the hedge funds, insurance companies, pension funds all involved. The wealth and the well being of citizens in many parts of the world can be damaged. Heart- severely if we don't make this system coherent.
1: Well, given the tension now between the two biggest economies in the world, US and China, what are the chances of that getting negotiated? Shouldn't the US just unilaterally regulate all this, given it's the US that manages global finance?
0: Well I guess if the United States benefits from being a world reserve currency. In other words, the United States for a recent Long time has been running big deficits and funding them with people holding US dollar denominated government bonds. And that was what you might call one of the privileges associated with what is a US bond, a government bond is called a store of value, which will be properly managed, properly regulated, etc., in its home country. So if you're sitting in Korea and you got extra money, Where's the place you can put the money where you, you know when you need it, you can get it back and nobody's going to done craziness or monkey business with it. So there is a competition among the reserve currency countries for which I call transparency, liquidity, integrity of the system that makes holding that store of value much more attractive. Now we're in a place where people can play with the American currency offshore, and the United States can't stop them. On the other hand, they don't necessarily want them to go be in renminbi or Russian rubles or whatever. Uh, I think the United States and Europe have had an amicable interaction where the euro and the dollar and for, for that matter, the Japanese yen have worked well in a trilateral system. But uh, I don't, I don't think uh, what will very shortly, if not already be the largest economy in the world, which is China, they do not have a convertible exchange rate, or enough experience with the supervision, regulation and integrity of financial regulation. To qualify as a reserve currency for international purposes.
1: Not yet, but aren't we getting into a period where people don't trust the United States to play that global management role? I mean, everybody acknowledges the U.S. benefits from being the reserve currency, but they go along with it because the U.S. does manage this system. And in times of crisis, the Fed does put lots of Liquidity into the system, and not just to American banks. In o seven o eight, the Fed put money into European banks, even non American corporations.
0: Well, I think there's concerns of that sort, and there's there's also this kind of anxiety that how would I say this? Um, the United States is being induced to unlock and let the cash flow out of the central bank and building bubbles. And some of the pain that we're going through right now is that in the time of the Ukraine War and US-China breakdown and so forth, the momentum of good news was off, but all of those induced opening of the spigot by the United States to keep the system coherent on the up ramp going back to 2006. And now, which you might call the bear market in housing and stocks is creating pain. And you could say, well, why didn't the Federal Reserve, you know, uh, Governor Powell and his team now are acting very hawkish and we're going to keep raising rates and a lot of people are saying, well labor share of GDP is nothing like it was when Paul Volcker was putting the hammer down. Yes, you have an oil shock from the Ukraine, like in the seventies you had an oil shock from OPEC, but you're, you're now crushing the people who've been struggling and which you might say the sophisticated billionaires got off the train and dumped the NASDAQ In other words, why don't we have a more gentle growth of the economy and corresponding to it, growth of the stock market's value, as opposed to this whipsaw that goes up and down based on floods of liquidity and then, oh my God, inflation and trashing it. And we're creating a system that has induced extreme volatility. And when you have induced extreme volatility, sophisticated people who can pay lots of money to hire financiers can get out of the harm's way and watch everybody else get trashed. And what we've seen with the tremendous intensification of the concentrations of wealth in the United States and around the world is that the strong get stronger by Maybe even being short the stock market, while the broad population gets compressed and compressed and or or goes through the ups and downs of volatility. And it's creating further sense of injustice, not a re-equilibration or balancing of society as it's structured now.
1: Why would anyone trust the US anymore and be willing to accept that deal? Yeah, you manage the system. We'll help subsidize you, including subsidizing all your damn military expenditure. You know, even your juicing of the American stock market. And let's let's not forget, when it comes to volatility, it's not that the rich just get out of the way of the consequences of most of that volatility. They know how to make even more riches out of volatility.
0: Yeah, I would say there are people who are professional in the realm of what I'll call a two-way street in the markets, and they got to surf a big wave up from 2010 to essentially the end of the pandemic, but we're now back in choppy water. And part of the reason that boom went up so big and for so long was that a US central bank trying to calm the waters kept having to open the spigot every time there was distress in a dollar denominated world system. And, uh, and the shocks may emanate from other places in the world. It's not, you know, there's a problem in Iowa or Texas, and we're dealing with that. There may be a problem in the Middle East or Russia or Southeast Asia, and it leads to violent transactions in dollar denominated things like swaps or what have you and the central bank has to come in and calm the waters in the united states because it's the reserve currency and uh or, or what they do they often give allocations to the other central banks to go administer their local regions where they're more knowledgeable about the specific firms immersed in the stress and the crisis but nonetheless The flood of dollars and then the drying up of dollars is related to the US being at the center of that world system.
1: And given the scale of this off the books jeopardy and other forms of derivative plays, which are also even bigger than global GDP, is there a growing lack of confidence in the system? You know, we saw in 07 08, the big banks wouldn't even loan to each other because they didn't believe each other's balance sheets, because they knew how phony their balance sheet was, and they assumed the other banks, correctly assumed, balance sheets were full of, full of BS too. So is there enough capacity in the central banks to calm the waters? Does it get to a scale where there's a meltdown of
0: proportions we've never seen before? I, I want to take it a little bit out of just the central bank because in securities markets, you have things like the Securities and Exchange Commission, Gary Gensler runs or the place he used to run, Commodities Futures Trading, CFTC. Uh, And so monitoring the, you know, I talked about providing liquidity, but I also talked about the examination, the setting standards for capital cushions, you know, the safety standards and so forth. And so some of the other regulatory apparatus plays a role there. There's a very brilliant scholar at University of Maryland, Maryland, who I've done a lot of work with over the years, Michael Greenberger. And he was at the CFTC when Gary Gensler ran it. And he engaged in proactive studies that really are worth looking at right now about the reporting of derivatives positions. And there's a very interesting story that underpins this. Let's say London, Frankfurt, and New York are competing to be the, the World Financial Center's hub. When they're competing, they want more activity in their domain. And by the way, people who invest in or own urban real estate in cities where high powered finance takes place tend to benefit. So there's a lot of collective social pressure to create an attractive environment for financiers, so that your financial center attracts more activity, more people, and the rising tide raises all boats in your region. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because when you force people to disclose all their derivatives and maybe take a haircut for a little safety cushion, you're creating a disincentive. So there's a competition in laxity between the different centers around the world. And Michael Greenberger has shown how the non-reporting of derivatives is not a coincidence or, or just an intellectual error. It's part of a system of understanding that laxity may attract things that you want in your domain. perhaps to the detriment of long term integrity of the financial system. And there, there needs to be, if you will, level playing field on a global basis, about the way derivatives are reported, and how much cushion you set aside, so that it's not a place where you can gain an edge for your financial hub, let's say, New York relative to London, or Frankfurt, or Paris, or Hong Kong, Tokyo, Shanghai. And those incentives play a big role in what you might call refuting the desire for systemic integrity. I know I've
1: interviewed Greenberger a couple of times, a few years ago, and he was saying that the Commodity Future Trading Exchange, you know, they knew what needed to be done and it wasn't for lack of policy they just couldn't get enough people to staff the place even in their own agency congress wasn't funding them properly you couldn't get legislation passed that was actually effective regulation and it's probably even worse now which raises a fundamental systemic question you know is this model of capitalism even possible of creating a regulatory environment with some rationality because this concentration of economic power in the financial sector have, has given them such enormous political power, and who wants to take? Who in Congress wants to take on the financial sector?
0: Right. Uh, to use Wall Street as a parable, but you could say London or you could say Frankfurt. When you have very high proportion of income and wealth in their many scholars who've now studied this in its relation to the distribution of income and wealth, the big donors can influence who gets appointed, what kind of laws and regulations are considered, how strong is the enforcement of existing laws and regulations. And if you don't like to have something enforced, you can start to tell congressmen and senators or the White House Using the United States as the example, uh, we're not going to hold fundraisers for you guys now. Or maybe we'll hold them for the other team that says we don't need those things. And they, they know how to stop strong enforcement of existing laws, and they know how to stop new laws, and they know how to repeal laws, and they know. How to elect people or get people appointed, who see things in a way that's advantageous for their wallets.
1: There are people who run for office who aren't beholden to Wall Street and actually do want some some real financial regulation. But the, their own leadership, the leadership of the Democratic Party, doesn't want these people to get elected and actively fights against them in primaries. But is that what we people need to do? You know, educate ourselves about some of these issues and then try to find candidates who are actually for some kind of action on this and organize and, you know, make this a demand in terms of, you know, developing and organizing a mass movement. You know, the financial sector got a lot of attention in 07, 08, but right now they seem to just be getting off scot sc- sc- free.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit uh, fantasy like for a moment. What we really need to do is collectively know that we have to reduce the role of money relative to votes in our political system in order to take care of the population. And what I mean by that is if you have public financing of elections, you could probably have smaller budget deficits because a lot of the stuff is pork that's done to induce campaign contributions <clears throat> so if you said the population is going to put its tax money in public funding of elections but you can't accept any outside donations the pork would go down and the, the deficits might be smaller but the money would be used second thing you've got communications companies radio television cable television etc. They make a lot of money covering elections every two years in the United States. What if you said in order to get a charter to be a communications company in America, you have to allocate public service announcement time and not get paid for it like people are selling ice cream or cheese. In other words, there's public service where the candidates get to speak but they don't have to pay for it like it's advertising.
1: There used to be legislation like that about equal opportunity in the in television during election campaigns, but I think it was Reagan got rid of that.
0: I think it it certainly in the period uh from Richard Nixon on has has disintegrated. I don't follow the intimate history. Uh but you if you said <coughs> to run for office I don't need to raise that much money. No one can raise that much money and use it. The public is paying for the budget and it doesn't cost, cost so much to reach people and market it, then the value of voters goes up and the value of money goes down. Now, here's a problem. How do you go to existing legislators and say, you got to pass that? Because what they're doing is, as incumbents, they're preserving an advantage vis-a-vis challengers because they can sell policy and challengers can't. So it might be a good idea, but I don't know how that fantasy idea can be implemented. But the idea of reducing the value of money might improve what you might call the vision of how to regulate a financial system, or enforce antitrust, or figure out how to work with these big uh, communications monopolies that the digital age has spawned. There are all kinds of things where concentrated money shouldn't re-regulating itself. The systems are for the public as a whole. and. If you allow the money politics to play a big role, they won't be designed or, or in, implemented for the broad well-being. Thanks a lot, Rob. Thank you. And thanks everybody
1: for joining us on the analysis.news. And
0: check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org.
1: And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it and reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it and i'll stand on the ocean until i start sinking but i'll know my song well before i start singing